Introducing Mortgage Matters. This is a great time to go buy a house. This is when the real estate fortunes are made. A show dedicated to helping you navigate the challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were put into conservatorship in 2008 and continued to dominate the mortgage market. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Brody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting live from the KBEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? It's time for Mortgage Matters. Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy March to you. Happy soggy March. Yeah, finally some rain. I'm so tired of this rain. So tired (laughs) of it. No way. No way. We were trying to go out and warm up for softball. We got softball season starts on Wednesday. We were trying to go out today, throw the ball, hit the ball. Sorry about let's call it. Let's call. Let's go with inconvenient timing. So tired of the rain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All the time rain. Let's go. Yeah, all the time. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Obviously not. We need some more rain. We need some. Yeah. I'd like some substantial rain too. Yeah, as long as we don't have a slide in Montecito again. True. But uh, on the other hand, yeah, it would be really nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, Dan, welcome back. We missed you, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because Dan's missed so many shows lately. (laughs) You know, yesterday or the day before yesterday, yesterday, Mike Points called me. And he said, hey, I know I know you guys are overwhelmed with opening the new office, all the things going on. He's like, I could cover for you on Saturday. <laughs> and I said, I really feel like I need to go. <laughs> and then he said, I feel like I could cover for Dan on Saturday. And I said, I really feel like Dan needs to go. <laughs> <laughs> so you're only here basically because I said no. <laughs> How's that feel? Thanks. Hey, man, it's been a long, it feels yeah. like, even if it hasn't been a long time, we haven't been doing shows together too frequently. This is our second show together of the year. Yeah, and yeah. we're, I mean, it's already March. Crazy, huh? Wild. Yeah. It's birthday month for Dan. Uh, Woohoo! Yeah. Do I have yeah. to play a birthday song today? No, no, Not no. today. You can no. save it. Okay. I don't but do a month-long celebration. It's at the tail uh, end of the month. I barely uh, do a day-long celebration. Okay. <laughs> Just don't like it that much? Meh. Just never been a big thing. I don't know. Well, you're an only child, so it's like every day is basically like, what do yeah, you want right? to do today, Dan? Presence, attention. You, yeah. Just, yeah, nothing but attention. Yeah, you just, yeah. yeah anything you want, <laughs> just showered on you. So you know just... me so well. Yeah. <laughs> when you have three brothers like me, birthday is like the only day that you get to pick your piece of chicken first. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> Boy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the market continues to be wild. I feel like we're figuring out this new year, right? I mean, we're in, look, we're already in March, so it's kind of halfway through the first quarter, right? But I feel like we're trying to figure out what we're doing. The stock market's trying to figure out what it's doing. The bond market's trying to figure out what it's doing. The, the president's Morgan. trying to figure out what he's doing. Oh, man. <laughs> he's the, rattling markets, man. Yeah, yeah, the the talk this week about um, tariffs. Yeah, crazy, right? That sent the stocks 
reeling on Thursday. Yeah. You say crazy just because it's unexpected or crazy because you think it's a weird economic um, or legislative economic policy policy proposal? Yeah. Proposal. That's where I'm at. Problem. Yeah. Don't like the idea? I, I don't feel like the ending is good. Yeah. There's a pretty funny um, article, Blast from the Past, from y- yours and my childhood. You remember Ferris Bueller, right? Yeah. Good old Ben Stein. Yeah. Bueller. Bueller. Anybody? Bueller. <laughs> In that famous scene, he talked about another tariff proposal by, um, well, it was in 1930. Did you have you see? Did you see this article that was making the rounds? I did not see the article. You've got my attention, sir. All right. So, for those of you who don't know, there was a um, on Thursday, President Trump proposed a twenty five percent tariff on steel and a ten percent tariff on aluminum. And during that famous scene in Ferris Bueller, um, when he's you know anyone anyone, and giving answers to his own little questions. <laughs> It's talking about Bueller. the 1930 Smoot Hawley Tariff Act, which raised tariffs on 20,000 goods that Americans bought from abroad. Um, and imports fell significantly. Canada and other countries retaliated. Stop me if this is sounding sim- familiar here. Um, and a trade war ensued. It crushed exports, worsened the Great Depression. And. Um, Anyway, so Ben Stein was, you know, he's kind of been out of out of the media for quite a while, probably since his last game show, maybe, win Ben Stein's money. But he returned to relevance this week because of that, that um, famous scene from the movie. And basically, you know, the, the lesson that he was teaching was um, whether or not that tariff worked and... Um, you know, his conclusion, at least in that brief scene, was that it did not work. It worsened the Great Depression. And Ben Stein was interviewed this week, and for whatever it's worth, you know, Ben Stein is a Republican, and he he did vote for Trumps, and he's said he's in favor of a lot of the policies of the Trump administration, at least the the things that have been proposed. But this was one where he definitely thought it was a bad idea. Um, that it just it that the world is going towards this global economy and you got to get on board or, or be left in the dust that it's, you know, it's just how the world is now and that tariffs are really only going to spark a trade war. And so we've already heard some, you know, responses from both. We heard from Canada, we've heard from China, we've heard from the European union. All of them obviously aren't happy about this and proposing their own tariffs on our goods. And, you know, the, other Republican um, legislators are are not happy about this. You know, it's long been understood that it's a it's a Republican ideal to have free trade, right? I hear it all the time from from Larry Kudlow, who makes his appearance on CNBC quite often. He's a free trade, free markets, free trade guy, and so there's a lot of people that don't like this um, proposal. And then economists believe that it does the, the path that it that it inevitably leads us down is a trade war where um, overall it hurts the whole world economy. You know, people stop 
trade the sandbox as much. gets mean. Yeah, it does, and then and then it really just slows down economic growth worldwide. And you know, here we are. It, while the economy has recovered quite a bit in the last decade, I don't know that anyone wants it to slow down right now. It's Man, not so hot that we need to slow it down. Trump just went from almost getting the Dow to twenty eight thousand to like creating the first global recession. Well, I don't know if we can say it's a global recession yet. <laughs> it's going to be. It's not. By the time all the trade war, like, and, you know, business just grinds to a halt as the consumer's paying $6,000 for a cup of coffee. I'm trying to tell if this is sarcasm <laughs> in your voice. I no, mean, I, I, get, I, I think I hear what you're saying. I think it's a little bit sensationalized um, looking at. The U.S. and jobs and manufacturing trying to get back to the roots when you're at a competitive disadvantage due to trade agreements and the fact that it can be so much cheaper to import somebody else's um, foreign produced good, which cuts you off at the knees of being able to have that ability to compete on your own soil. I mean, that's kind of the evolution that we've been through. I understand there's one camp saying, hey, that's the way of the world, though. Get used to it. You're no longer going to get to be the manufacturer. You're going to have to end up figuring out how to let other people manufacture and see if you can still be relevant in that. Um, Trump, I think, is a little more old school, saying, well, let's level the playing field. If the if we're at a competitive disadvantage because it's cheaper to import, then you tax the imports. And um, the baby with the bathwater, of course, as it does, it leads to inflation. I I think anybody, no matter what side of the aisle you're politicking from, um, everybody's going to agree that those things lead to higher prices. So you um, think the good of it is is the the manufacturing jobs, the steel not, workers and the aluminum I don't want to be, workers. Yeah, I don't want to be lumped in to say that that's the good of it that that I'm looking for the upside of it. I think what I'm what I'm really wanting to say is that I understand what you believe pulling this lever does. If it allows you to be competitive in a space where you were at a competitive disadvantage that yes, it creates those opportunities for jobs and manufacturing that otherwise have gone to the wayside because you can't compete. And look, many of these things, you know, regardless of of which particular good we're talking about importing or raw material we're talking about importing, Part of the problem is is that the U- the U.S. matured, and in our new mature society, we've got labor unions, we've got environmental regulations, we've got protections, we've got a, a variety of things that have, you know, in some cases you could find out, like in styrofoam, for example, the EPA just made it too difficult for you to be able to produce styrofoam here competitively, so... Let it go in a country, a third world country, where they can make the styrofoam without regulation of an EPA and ship it in here for pennies on the dollar in order to make an American plant that could make the styrofoam in an environmentally responsible and acceptable way. It has to cost five bucks a cup. So you lose the ability to produce the cup. Those types of things, I think, are part of that that global problem, um, and I think only problem in as much as there's these exploitable countries that haven't yet figured out how to organize themselves, demand a fair wage and a safe working environment. I don't know that that's totally the situation here because so much of our steel imports are coming from Canada, which I wouldn't say is an exploitable country so much. I think it's a very developed, industrialized country where they do have the progressive health care and things like that that you know developed countries 
have or or desire. Yeah, but what do you so, think? What do you think is at the end of the road if it if it gets to the point where the tariff allows the steel to either be produced here or just makes the American companies more competitive? Well, I'm going to buy into what the people who study this more than I do believe, and that's that, one, you have about 150,000 people employed in the steel and aluminum manufacturing industry that will be benefited, right, because they'll get more work. At its and peak, then there's though? about six and a half million people who rely on steel imports as part of their job because they're buying the steel and then using it to build. So there's there's fear that it's actually going to do more harm than good on the employment side. Well, but and you're then, in part you're at least talking about the hundred and fifty thousand people that work in that industry today. Was it six and a half million people that worked in that steel industry forty years ago? It's I, I don't know. Again, I'm I'm going off of people who know more about this than I do, who I I believe are diverse in their political orientations as well. You know, this isn't just some left-leaning slant. This is economists nationwide. This is a lot of Republican lawmakers as well believing this and worried about this who are trying to convince him to <laughs> dial back the the rhetoric and perhaps, you know, maybe maybe change the tariffs to target certain countries that are exercising unfair trade practices practices and in particular I think they're talking about let's let's um, not do this to Canada. I think is one of the big things that's trying to go on here. But the other issue is that um, a lot of these jobs have not necessarily been lost to foreign labor or or what have you. It's been they've you know the reduction in in people who who produce steel or whatever. It's been lost due to tech, technological changes in the industry, and those aren't necessarily coming back. And that was another part of this Ben Stein interview I found interesting. Again, you know, I don't want to be accused of you know, political leanings here. He's a Republican. He voted for Trump. He supports a lot of the policies. And he even went on record saying, I'd vote for him again. Um, But he's here criticizing this move, saying that, you know, really, rather than, than trying to create an environment where you're, where you're putting workers, you know, you're, you're basically putting this tariff on to try to try to create employment in a sector that's that's really it's being outdated due to a lot of technology changes and issues like that. Let's out, let's put money towards retraining these people to bring them up to speed to today's world because with technology you need people who can work on the machines that do the job more efficiently than the worker can. So let's let's train these people to be able to run those machines and and fix those machines when they break because those machines aren't going away. They can work 24 hours a day. They don't need breaks. They don't need workers comp. They don't, you know, they don't complain about their, their coworker, you know? So there's a lot of (laughs) advantages to the technological um, advancements that have been put into place. So I, I think that at the end of this road, what happens is things become more expensive to the consumer and the consumer ends up paying more. And is that what the consumer wants? I would say no. Most consumers don't want to pay more for things. Uh, well, we have to, though, right? I mean, in as a part of our great world, capitalist sure. world, we have to pay more. But not, we'd like to earn more, but we have to pay more. Not more than we have to. Correct. And we might have to a little bit to keep the machine working, but we don't want to have to do it more than we have well, to. Well, 
Yeah. That's the concern, right? I now. always feel like one of the interesting things is from one administration to the next. You've got the politics of one guy, right? Pisses off half the world, makes some people happy, focuses in some things that the other half is just absolutely beside themselves about. And, just and then the clear, next administration this, this comes in. This policy change from this administration is is making, I, I would venture to say, about 100% of the sure. politicians angry right now. Yeah. No well, one likes this. Well, but all I, my point, though, <laughs> my point, though, is that it doesn't matter who the president is and which side they they pander to when the next administration takes over and we go okay well now now you get to go through you get to you get to slash out all those executive orders and you get to redo this and you get to redo that and it it just is an opportunity to for the pendulum to move back in the other direction i do think that these tariffs are particularly interesting um I think fundamentally, like just at the core of being tough, I like the idea of, you know, if we're at a disadvantage, let's make it, let's level the playing field. If we are like, I, I like that idea of, of, you know, self-preservation and, and doing things in self, your own self-interest that um, sort of just help you make sure that you're that you're accomplishing the objectives, the goals, the needs of the nation. At the same time, I'm like, you also got to make sure what you're doing. Yeah. At what expense, right? Well, not only what expense, but also are you, is what you're doing going to actually accomplish that? Or because we know some of the expenses, right? You're throwing sand in the sandbox. Now you're upsetting other trade agreements. Like you said, you potentially starting trade wars or making some strained trade wars. Now, you know, you're tipping them off to the break point. Um, could be some inflation, could be some hyperinflation, you know, so there's all those things where I understand why you want to do it is the, is the place that you're doing it and the way that you're about to do it going to accomplish the objective. Um, one of the, for example, you know, auto manufacturing, not necessarily talking about just steel, but auto manufacturing in general. If an American company makes an offshore plant because they can produce a car at 25% less and then import it back with no import tariffs and, and, you know, take that manufacturing those jobs away, should you be able to do that? That's a great philosophical question. Sit down with, you know, 10 of your best friends and hash that out. Um, you could make all kinds of arguments as to why you should or why you shouldn't. I Is that the only price point at which the car could be sold? I don't know. But at the same time, you could make that same argument. Well, yeah, and then take all the displaced factory workers <laughs> for the factory that moves abroad and retool them into doing something else. Um, spend your energy doing that instead of caring about the fact that you moved manufacturing out and you took away the that that company out of the U.S. tax base, took away those head of household jobs, took away you know all, all of those things, and so it becomes very complex very quick. Um, but we started talking about this. Let's just come back full circle real quick. We started talking about this because on Thursday when these tariffs get announced, we see the Dow just tank right. Uh, we see the markets go into a little bit of a freak out. Why are the markets freaking out? Well, for a couple of reasons. Those tariffs represent, like we discussed, higher prices to consumer. That's hard to argue, isn't it? Uh, I think that's exactly <laughs> what it happens. So if you're going to be just paying higher prices, uh, you're going to have less money 
which to, means economic slowdown. Right. And so that's a, that's a little bit of a shot across the bow to GDP. Got to cause everybody to freak out a little bit. Which is counterintuitive to what the whole tax cut plan was about, right? That was supposed to, sp- supposed to charge up GDP and get us to these three and four and five percent thresholds to help justify the, the revenue shortage. Yeah. But now we're doing policy that's potentially going to counteract that. So, yeah. Sounds like, <laughs> sounds like politics to me, man. You know, it's like when I look at all of these things, it's like you, there isn't any one isolated piece. You know, it's also interrelated. Was talking with a, a group this week. We were talking about the market and economics and interest rates and things like this. And um, soon somebody brought up, you know, we talk about interest rates. I, in fact, I, I started to pull up some pricing right now. I just wanted to. Um, yeah. So at the end of the week, we finished out about mortgage rates, finished out about where they began the week. So. Nothing huge, no big ups, no big downs. Um, it was a reasonably big news week, um, but it feels like a whole bunch of volatility. So I was talking to this group of people about, you know, somebody said, well, let's take a bet on whether interest rates are at 5% by the end of the year. It's like, <laughs> whoa. Um, take the over on that? <laughs> well, there's supposed to be four rate hikes in the Fed, right? And, right. um, you know, and, and interest rates are at about four and a half percent right now, give or take, depending on scenario. And are we coming scenario. up on a meeting this March month meeting. with a big press conference afterwards? Yes. Those are the favorites to do A 90, uh, 90% changes? chance of a rate hike Oof. for March. So, but anyway, uh, more than half of the people that we were talking with said they thought that the interest rate for a 30-year fix would be at 5% by the end of the year. I'll I'll be pleasantly surprised if it stays at five percent by the end of the year. You think it'll be beyond five? That's where I'm I'm worried right now. I do think the the mortgage backed securities market has gotten a little ahead of the Fed and the Treasury market. Um or I should say mortgage backed securities and treasuries have both gotten ahead of the Fed a little bit. So I, I would venture to guess that March rate hike happens, negligible effect on interest rates across the board because they've already assumed it to be. Um, but you have a couple more of these things, and I, I can see it moving its way up to five. No, I don't know. I think five is a pretty good, pretty good estimate. I think I've been a little bullish on where interest rates have been heading for the last three years, and uh, they seem to fall below my expectations. So I'll, I'll stick time. with that number. Yeah. Because my initial reaction is like, man, I could see it at five and a quarter, five and a half, but no, I'll go with five. Where did it start the year? Right around four? Yeah. Yeah, so right around four, and you expect four quarter point rate hikes, which you know should push it up to around five, if, assuming rates kind of follow Fed policy. So yeah, I think five's a good number. I'm with it. I'm on board. And see, and I can't help but wonder, I, here's the environment in which I see five, Dan. I think if if things keep working, right, four quarters of 3% GDP, four quarters of plus 100,000 jobs a month, four quarters of stable real estate value, you know, four quarters of hitting target inflation or close to it. Sure. Um, But here's the thing. um, There's a few 
points here that we have to look at and you and you have to look at these and really pay some attention to it um household debt is at all-time high again that's a scary thing think about that um it wasn't very long ago we were talking about how house household debt wasn't a significant concern we had some couple warning metrics over the course of the last year, the auto market being very unstable, having a kind of a high level of delinquency. Um, we've got, you know, essentially, we've seen some inflation. I think the inflation numbers sort of are underrepresentative of uh, one of the biggest inflationary factors that most people are facing today, which is health insurance. I think that hits the employer and the employee. Um, But the fact that you've got rising household debt, you've got rapidly increasing real estate values that really show no sign of stopping. We read more metrics this week that, you know, FHFA and the Case-Shiller. So I I just worry that some of these things are, are perhaps standing on more of a point than you might hope them to be. And so what does happen if you get a little bit of bad news, is it fragile? You know, wage growth hasn't kept up, those things. Is it possible that all of a sudden we go from best times ever to could it be a recession and then a little bit of that Pygmalion philosophy takes hold and you find yourself going, well, we were really poised for a 5.5% 30-year fix at the beginning of 2018 when it looked like onward and upward and then come to realize that we were we were knocking on the door of you know a fragile economy was knocking on the door of suffering another correction let's talk more about that here we do need to take a quick commercial break it's about 30 minutes here into into the show and a perfect time to take a quick break we'll regroup you'll regroup um if you'd like to participate in uh in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call, 543-8830, 543-8830. Your participation always makes the show a little bit better. Um, but here we are. We're going to take a break and stick around for more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KBEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. Hi, this is Jason Grody of Central Coast Linen. Too often, potential home buyers disqualify themselves believing they need perfect credit. The fact is we can finance home buyers with low credit scores, collections, bankruptcy, foreclosure, or short sale. Before you meet with a realtor, step one is to get pre-approved. Just call 543 Loans. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing lender. California BRA number 018-39608. DBO number 6054783. MLS number 328-358. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. 
Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. Ferris Bueller is really special to me. <laughs> oh, I I don't remember the year it came out, but I know I was young. I was I was in grade school, eighty six. Okay, I don't know. Let me look it up. If the, I I wouldn't be surprised. So if so, that would put me at eight years old, and it's it's special to me because it was the first movie. You know, my dad back when you went to a movie store to pick out your your movie for the oh, night. Yeah. That was one of the things my dad Hilltop would do. video in Big Bear. Yeah, we'd go to the video store. We'd go through. And, of course, my dad. Dude, 1986. My dad would want to pick out some Clint Eastwood Western or something. And, <laughs> and I'd pick out something that appealed to me as, oh, yeah. as a young boy. And this was the first movie that I picked out where my dad was like, nice choice. <laughs> this is good. I like this one. <laughs> so felt like I turned into a man that day. Here we go. <laughs> Bueller. 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 <laughs> this, this could Bueller. go on. Anyone? Here. Bueller. Here. Bueller. <laughs> Such a Bueller. great movie. I love it. I just love that. Um, okay. The scene, though, where they're in the glass house. The glass house? Yeah, it's like the oh, glass garage, the garage. Yeah. and they they got yeah. the T bird up in there, and they're it's attempting to Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, and they got the got Ferrari up in there to try to unwind. They've got the it in reverse <laughs> with a brick on the accelerator, <laughs> which is yeah. spinning the odometer backwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's dumb. Yeah, it doesn't work. That doesn't work like that. Then no, they found that, that out. I think. I think yeah, they found that pretty was much the case. <laughs> Wasn't it working though in the movie? I don't I know. Had, it's been a long time. I had I've a model, no. you know, with the the glue and the little pieces. I had a model of that exact car. Oh, mm. that's because you didn't have siblings. <laughs> <laughs> I 
we would have we would have used the glue to like <laughs> glue a kid to a bed yeah. somewhere, and then the parts would have ended up broken everywhere. Yeah. And if you were lucky enough to get the model done, somebody would have come along and broke it just as you did it, just to just to remind you that that's not worth trying to do something cool. I guess. So you sat around and did modeling and things. Yeah, time. yeah. Uninterrupted. Did a really time. good job too. If you might not have guessed it, I really had a good attention for detail. Oh no, I just. <laughs> Do you have a? Is there like a shrine of models at mom's house? I think house my or dad something? still has them. Yeah, I bet you those are some like Smithsonian quality <laughs> models. They're pretty good. Yeah, yeah I don't. <laughs> I just don't doubt that. Well, oh boy. So we were talking about some of the um, conditions in today's world that, if there were to be some kind of hiccup at all, you know, could there be? go from a, a growing economy to I, I'm not I you said best economy ever. I'm I don't think we're there. Well but um are we on our way to the best economy ever? Things are improving. What would it take? I think um more people being able to afford a home. I think home affordability yeah well you live out here age stagnation you live out here on the west coast though no no no. this is a it's it's really bad here but it's bad everywhere it's bad everywhere it's also supply and demand thing right yeah but it has a lot to do with lack of wage growth for a prolonged period of time and that yeah and where while at the same time Home prices have just become which I, this thing that's like a luxury for the rich only. Which I think also that lack of wage growth is another reason why we constantly are wrestling with household debt today. At the same time, you know, I think about that household debt and so much of that number has got to be made up of mortgages, right? And mortgages are so greatly affected by these rapidly appreciating home values, you know, so... So with with so much of that debt being based on home valuations that have gone up and up and up for the last 10 years, recovered all of the value lost and then some, you know, through that last 10 year period. So so that's where all that increase has gone. I'd be I'd be interested to see how the, consumer debt has Yeah, re- so the the recent quarterly report on household debt and credit reveals that household debt reached a new peak in the fourth quarter of 2017 rising 193 billion to reach 13.15 trillion. Balances climbed 1.6% on mortgages, 0.7% on auto loans. on credit cards and 1.5% on student loans. So, but how does the, I'm I'm curious how the total credit card debt compares to before, because that's that spending that I think kind of scares me most. I mean, autos are so expensive now and mortgages are so expensive. Mortgages don't concern me as much as they did in the pre pre recession era, because so much of mortgage debt today is fixed and it's that was the problem when you had a hiccup in the economy combined with mortgage debt fluctuating and well and I th- ballooning and, and all of those all crazy of the things. people that I sat down and talked to during that rodeo you know where everyone was just trying to figure out is it even worth trying to stay on this bull um, you had here is the problem. My value of my home has gone down 
Nobody can disagree with that. In fact, we didn't even know how low it was going to go. We also didn't know that it was going to recover, and people probably would act differently had they known that they could have ridden it out. But the values fell so quickly and so dramatically that people that were having issues at work or um, you know, just a lack of confidence at work were looking at something that fell in value and there was an event on the horizon. There was an adjustable rate mortgage that was going to change or fully amortize or do something in year two, three, or five. And they just were like, hang on a minute. I might have to go five years to figure out when that thing adjusts, if there's going to be enough equity for me even to be able to refi it or maybe even sell it. And if I'm going to wreck my credit in year five, I'd rather just wreck it today and get busy rebuilding. And these people had no skin in the game. So many of these people bought these homes with zero down. So what are they fighting to keep? And our government made it easier for people to default on their obligations, gave waivers, you know, agreed to to not collect the tax. So, you know, I think, and, and I understand at some degree, it's it's that you don't want to smack somebody when they're down, right? You're already down. You're out. You lost your job. You lost your home. You're rock bottom. It was an epidemic. It was an epidemic. So I get it. But at the same time, it, it, it cements the idea for, for most people paying attention that when the going gets tough, the government will even uh, kind of aid the masses and say, hey, well, you know, we're sorry that didn't work out for you. Screw the banks. You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay the debt forgiveness, all those kind of things, right? So in any case, I I agree with you. Going forward today, I'm less worried about the mortgage debt than I was then. The kind of loans, the qualification, the lack of investment from the consumer into the property, um, that was... The financial strength of the institutions yeah, making mortgages not, now? not even stress tests on banks weren't even a word yeah. back then. We didn't understand the leverage ratios and the danger of not having reserves. I mean, we we get a lot of that, right? But anyway, going back to this real quick... Um, Total overall indebtedness was $13.15 trillion. Um, this looks like $8.8 trillion of that um, was the mortgages. Mm-hmm. Um, home ac- balances on home equity lines actually declined again by $4 billion, now stand at $444 billion. People are refining out of them. Or they're those loans that came due and they've just been paid off. Yeah, but it's 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 nice that we're not seeing stats about them running rampant. <laughs> I couldn't help but but chuckle a little bit this week. I saw one of the warehouse banks that we work with told you, "Well, I'd really hate you guys to lose your line of credit offer going into this economy." And right. I I kind of read that and I laughed a little bit, like, "Oh, well, oh, I'm really fr- in favor anymore." <laughs> They're not in favor. They're not very easy to get. They're not, yeah, they're, but not only that, that's what I'm supposed to hang my hat on in this industry is my ability to give people a home equity line of credit. That's not what the average consumer wants or needs right now. Um, So anyways, it's nice to see that this isn't, you know, the big driving factor, but credit cards are going up and, you know, and that that's the thing. That's kind of the point that I was going to make is that. You've got credit cards right now, or really non 
non-housing debt heading into the $4 trillion mark. And when the going gets tough, especially when it's non-housing related, um, a little bit of a correction in the rate environment, um, you know, if they're, say you go through that period where households have to figure out how to deleverage. And that's one of the consequences of finding yourself in a new peak of household debt is that should there come a correction, you say the Fed starts hitting target inflation. So a little bit more pressure on that consumer who's carrying that household debt. Fed start raising rates. We're poised to see four of them this year. A little more pressure on that consumer carrying that household debt. Then you got, you know, perhaps some layoffs, maybe some of those furloughs. We had a lot of that. Couple little things. And then at some point, then what? Oh man, I just, I, I can't keep all the balls in the air anymore. I let the credit cards go. Um, those, and like I said, the, the auto loan business, the delinquencies and auto loans have already been a little bit telling of that strained part of, uh, the American consumer. So it's just, all I'm saying is you got to keep an eye on it. Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't come to fruition in the next six or 12 months, but could that happen? If that happened, you can't keep pushing rates up in the face of that. Sure. We've got Ed calling in from Atascadero. Good morning, Ed. Uh, good morning. Yeah, you're right uh, about the, uh, the people buying into uh, cheap housing because they didn't have any down payment. I bought one for $250,000 that the people that uh, walked away from it, and it was in foreclosure, had paid uh, the sales price was 600000 and their loan on it was 625000 Wow. So evidently they walked in with no down payment. They gave the down payment, and exactly three years later when they raised the rates, uh, they couldn't afford it anymore. So, And that was all the, fart, all the fault of the government uh, who insisted that people that couldn't qualify for some reason, ethnic or, or racial or whatever, uh, were allowed to get loans that had no down payment. And that was forced on on the lenders by the government and in the government at that time was the democratic government. So that's what happened. Ed, thanks for your call today. I appreciate it. Um, I, I'm going to respectfully disagree with the rationale. I, I think it has nothing to do with race, ethnicity or anything. I think it has well, only to do with bank. I know what you're going to say, and I'm going to pile <laughs> on. I agree with you. And I, I want to add when you get done adding here, but let me just first say, there's some validity to the claim because there was some government initiative that said that you needed to make home ownership more attainable for those for the underserved for the underserved. Sure. That's the whole Re- mantra of FHA, okay. which came about in the 70s. That being said, why don't you talk for a minute about what happened from the emergence of the Alte market, which I mean, we had such a unique front row seat to this in the in the early 2000s here in the mortgage business. I mean, yeah, this this was a snowball that had to do... And I mean, if you've read any of the books or seen it, I mean, there's movies and books all about this stuff. And basically what was happening was Wall Street was running out of people to loan to. And so all the qualifiable people, even with the more forgiving programs, the FHA programs, the low down payment, all that kind of stuff... Those banks were running out of people to lend to. 
And so they in they just loosened guidelines and and it became this race to to see who could have the loosest guidelines to continue to be able to lend. And it was all because there was this collusion on the back end between the insurance companies and the banks and the rating agencies because there's all this money in trading and selling mortgages. I think, too, I'll tell you this. um, From where I sit, the stage was set because, like you said, running out of people of who to loan money to. Yes, there was some government saying, hey, and by the way, if you think that, you know, whether you're Democrat or Republican, all politicians want to see um, the underserved, that average American be able to afford the average home. You're going to be able to find sound bites of everybody saying this. And I understand this is a little bit more than a sound bite. However, the stage is set that um, the biggest problem Hands down, biggest problem is the lack of regulatory framework. You had, and I, and this is the part where I need you to understand, Dan and I worked for a firm right here in Slow uh, that did home loans in the state of California and beyond, had a very intimate relationship with the traders on Wall Street where these loans were being traded and securitized. And I want you to know that what we saw was some members of a reputable firm defect on a Monday night, start a new company on Tuesday morning with the financial backing of some other huge company or private money or beg, borrow, and steal their way into it because the leveraging was just absurd. You could leverage a dollar like 50 to one back then. And all of a sudden, bam, If you had an email address and a phone number, you were in now able to create and offer mortgage products. So we would see the guys, Dan, remind me of some of these relationships, ALS, Lehman Brothers, the big, too big, too big to fail of 2008. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns. But they, who defected, the defectors from Lehman Brothers became the winner group, I think. Uh, That was Credit Suisse First Boston became... defected to create this second lien they were big second lien buyer the winter group yeah and And they they all they wanted to buy was 13 and 14 percent second lien so the bottom line is these people that yeah maybe they were in some bit of a, a high up position in another company just with two or three other buddies with uh just ideas of huge success where all of a sudden they were mortgage companies. And I was an underwriter at the time, so I'd get the the announcement, hey, over here at, at such and such a company, um, we do just what just what Bear Stearns did, except for we don't have that FICO requirement. We dropped the credit score requirement by 50 points, and we no longer need reserves. Okay, crazy. So point being... And remember, at the same time they're offering these riskier and riskier and riskier mortgages, they're also taking bets on the default of these same mortgages, so they're going to make money on it going both ways. Either way, and right? It was, I mean, it's well documented now how corrupt that system was. And then you talked about re- lack of regulation. Well, licensing-wise, you as a loan officer in many states in the U.S., there was no license even required to be a loan right. officer. Right, you could get exemptions and be able to do licensing The loan anywhere. products, thanks to these companies coming out and inventing these outrageous products with 
no oversight from the SEC or otherwise, just saying, hey, we offer a loan, and Ed, the property that you were talking about that was purchased for 600000 and and three years later had a loan for six twenty five. Uh, really popular was a loan that had a negative amortization feature to it where you paid a fraction of the actual interest due. The balance of the interest was then added to the backside of the loan so that you could debt service less than the actual interest due, be able to qualify for something that you had no business qualifying for because you couldn't afford it from day one and everybody knew it. But the idea was rising tide lifts all boats. These properties are going up 20, 25, 30, 35% a year. You couldn't do anything wrong uh, until that stopped, right? And but- no one was keeping, no one was specifically tasked with keeping their eye on that industry. There were several regulatory bodies that that was part of what they did, but no one specifically tasked with it. So when it came down to the whole crash, everyone was kind of, well, I thought well, I you, thought were you did that. that. I thought you cared about yeah, that. Yeah, even our own. Um, Fed chairman at the time, Alan Greenspan, was like, I had no idea that the mortgage market was made up of <laughs> 40 and 50% subprime and alt loans. I, I had right. no idea. So it was just, I mean, a failure all around and a failure on not assigned to any one political party um, or anything. It was well, just no, it, failure is what it was. It, true to every issue. Um, we want to pinpoint the other party or the other people as who did the thing wrong. Um, in this case, one of the one of the several truths that we know now, looking back over that crazy period of time, uh, number one, never underestimate the power of self-preservation. Dang. Loan volumes going down? Companies. Let's loosen guidelines. Anything. (laughs) Just keep me rolling in the dough. They did not want that era to end. The programs got lamer and lamer, lesser requirements. Um, I know I've told this story on the show before. I was underwriting in about 2003. I walked into Dan's office with a loan file. Um, This may have been 2004. Anyway, you get the era. I walked into Dan's office with a loan file, and I laid it on the desk, and I said, this loan right here is the proof that we're this whole economy is going to hell in a handbasket. We had um, 100% financing between an 80% first and a 20% second for a borrower that was doing a no-doc loan, so not even declaring whether or not they had a job, whether they had income, whether they had assets. It didn't have a credit score. It was using alternatively documented credit for a borrower um, with a variety of other issues that that I'm not convinced are important. But you get the idea. From today to then, today we have a need. I mean, the, the framework today is around documenting a borrower's ability to repay. Before you extend this credit, what reason do you have to believe that this borrower has the ability to repay this lien? And there's no question. There's no comparison. And like you said, I remember those awesome interviews where they asked Greenspan, who seemed like he came off of a bender on spring break, (laughs) where they were like, dude, how did you not know this? And he was like, I had no idea that there was negatively amortizing option arms that were making up that percentage of the purchase market. I had no idea that 50% of the market was Alt-A subprime. 
wow, okay, uh, we we understand that now. Um, the average consumer had no idea. Uh, I, I remember us beta testing a Bear Stearns option arm product, 100% no-doc option arm product, and we weren't even a month into beta. We were the West Coast beta testers. Oh, it was supposed to be gathering data for the SEC to, to allow this to we go were, out we into were, the market. Yeah, we were beta testing this product. We were the only firm on the West Coast offering it. There was one East Coast firm offering it. We were loaning. We were making these loans. And then it was supposed to be analyzed and see how the performance was of these loans. Let, I mean, three weeks into beta testing, Bear Stearns released the product nationwide because there was just a race for oh, yeah. money. Yeah. It was a greed issue. So, you know, on topic of of how we got here. So, first of all, Ed, thanks for the call. Like Dan said, um, we know we know that stuff. Those those demands were essentially uttered back by a democratic regime. The practicality of it is that's not how it got its legs. It got its legs from bankers with no regulation um, and just crazy greed and ability to make millions upon billions of dollars. And then when it all came down to it, it was dust in the wind. The companies were defunct without a you know anyone even go after you know the the companies left holding the bag they're they're the ones that are still here today they've been through um it's pretty tumultuous times but um going back to this discussion about household debt and this whether or not the economy stands on a little bit of a point today um those loans, I'll agree with you. They're they're pretty bulletproof, right? Today's and rents have even buoyed them up so much that even if you found out your home went down ten percent in value, maybe you even have negative equity, your payments fixed forever, and the rents around you are the same or more from where you bought. So I think some people will ride out a little bit of a recession well, next they time. Had, even if it was a low down payment, most people had to put something down. So there's something to fight for, right? Yeah, generally. I mean, and a 5% down payment is yeah. nothing to laugh at in today's housing market, especially at in California. At the same time, I don't think that too many people will throw good money after bad money. If you realize you put 25 grand down and it's lost, it's you're already paying, lost. You're paying three grand a month for your mortgage. Where are you going to go rent your three-bedroom house for? Two same, grand a same, month? Same, same, That's what I'm saying. 2500 a month? You're going to end up in the same boat. Yeah. Hey, we have the top of the hour commercial break here, so we'll be out for about five minutes. We get back, we're going to dig into some more of the economic data that we learned this week. Um about the economy and spend a whole nother hour with you. So go water the dogs, get some fresh coffee, whatever you got to do. We'll be back with more Mortgage Matters. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. I'd have figured you were coming back with that. What's the one they do in the street? The oh, shout? 
You know what? I could do that. I'll do that. You don't have week. to do that. I don't really like that song anyway. I uh, know. Really? Chris and Shout? Yeah. No? Yeah. I just figured we're getting into the second hour. Start me up. Start me up the second hour here. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, I see. Yeah, the you know the the stones here. Oh, start, is that the stones? Yeah, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> start them. Yeah, yeah. They, you might have heard of them. They're the other band from Liverpool. Oh yeah, I think maybe they're. I'm not sure. England, I know that, but anyway. You could bring us back from the next break with Shakedown Street. I would like that. Shakedown Street. Oh yeah. That'd be a great one. Um, I'll try to find that. Well, we started talking. um, We started just kind of talking in general about the economy and the stock market and these tariffs. And we ended up, um, I think, trying to carefully navigate um i was gonna say navigate that's what my dad always would call somebody in the car that was um trying to give directions the backseat driver the navigator uh anyway we're trying to navigate these issues um trying trying hard to um not just get going down the total political path right right we don't have to say what's what. Dan and I have pretty different political beliefs. We have a lot of very similar political beliefs. We also have some that are very different. Um, and I always really enjoy the conversations we have that um, we have very common ground on something. These are it's laughable the the way that uh, the the polarizing two sides of the aisle are. And um, so anyhow, I. Appreciate the call from Ed. Um, hopefully we're doing a good job of, of trying to just sort of go up the middle on the things that need to be gone up the middle. That issue, that issue of the housing mandate as relates, relates to um, those, those markets that, uh, you know, people that are underprivileged or don't use the bank system the same way that other people do, that don't have the same credit opportunity as another race may. Um, that, to me, that issue was just so cut and dry that that was definitely um, perfectly coincidental to the loan products and market that went on at the time. And I think that's a place where you, you and I really agree on that in spite of having pretty different um, takes on certain political things. So anyway, there you are. Um, We were talking about, you know, kind of what's been going on. And I said to you, uh, first of all, I was a little bit relieved to see you so calmly say you thought interest rates might be more than 5%. Um, I actually had a few moments this week where I had to talk myself off the off the cliff a little bit, like thinking about interest rates and like, holy smokes, you know, what does happen is you, you know, 2017, you know, in our industry, for example, we still had a fair amount of people that did refinance business. And I know there'll be a little bit of that going forward, um, but if there's just less, 10 or 15% less, uh, the purchase market is tight, and banks are competing um, 
they're competing more and more. If only in ad dollar, they're competing more. So the market's a it's a condensing and competitive environment right now. Um, I know in the increasing rate environment, we're going to see profit margins get whittled away at as companies, again, in that effort of self-preservation, do do what they need to do to keep the lights on. Um, yet you seem to just like say, oh, man, rates are definitely going north of that. And, and uh, that doesn't cause you any angst or concern for yourself or the broader economy? I can't control it, so I'm not going to get too worked up about it. I think normal interest rates are 6 to 8%, so I think normal is going to happen at some point. Um, it's, it, it, and, and I think we want it to, really. I think in order for rates to reach those levels, our economy will be doing better. Um, otherwise, interest people can't afford to pay those interest rates. So I think if if interest rates reach those levels, that will be that will be because the economy itself continues to grow and thrive, and um, that'll be good for everyone. So I think that's where it's going as long as we continue to have growth. Now, you know, you you back to the tariff thing. We did see that that spooked the markets initially, and we saw in particular in the bond market that Treasury yield quickly came off its highs. You know, it had been pushing right up around 3% on the 10-year Treasury note, and it fell down right into the 280, low 280 range. So that was a, a good little bump downward. And, you know, I, I remember, I think it was Thursday, where all day long I'm getting mortgage rate improvement emails all day. And I was like, man, I haven't seen that in a while. That felt good. It seems like for the last several weeks, if not a month or more, we've just been getting bombarded with worsenings so it was a nice to see but you know that that shows me that if there is some slowdown in economic growth that we'll see rates um not continue to rise like they have been but if the economy continues to improve then we will see rates go up so you know it's i don't know that it's a bad thing that rates go higher it's reflective of the overall economy and the and whether it's growing or not and so it's just something that you have to accept. I read a really interesting article this week about the bond market and why when the Dow, when the equity market looks like it's experiencing a little bit of a correction, right? And we kind of felt that vibe for the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, how come more money doesn't move over into the American bond market and, and cause lower yields? And... This article went on to describe that basically one of the problems is the the dollar, uh, the value of the dollar for other investors. It just wasn't enough of a spread um, to really be an attractive investment, that there was other markets that were um, a little bit better investment. Um, I, I look at that 10-year yield knocking on the door of the 3% level. And there's some part of me that thinks, well, that's still pretty low. Maybe it wants to go higher. Um, 3%, by the way, seems like it's a, um, you know, they, the top end of a range. It's a sort of a psychological number. It sort of gets you into the, if, once you get into three, well, the range from three to four is pretty huge, right? So you got to imagine that that, that, number is going to try to float to the mid threes probably pretty quickly. 
So really interesting to see if we do make it over that level, what happens. And, um, you know, of course, there was some Fed talk this week, too. We learned about different members of the Fed have talked about whether or not we actually should have the four rate hikes that others have talked about for this year. We saw that one member of the Fed is is campaigning for only two rate hikes, not believing that we should even have um, three, let alone four. Who was that? Um, I have to go back to my notes and figure it out. But there was a, it was one of the little media clips of just saying, you know, that that perhaps two rate hikes were more in order. Um, but so point being, um, you know, kind of feels like it's anyone's guess right now, doesn't it? And here we are, just starting March. So, I remember last year though. Did you have angst last year? I don't, maybe you don't stress as much as I do. I had angst last year. About the rate environment? Yeah. Oh, I, I had real did. angst. And, um, and I was finding myself, I was reminding myself several times this last couple weeks here of that same sensation. It was a similar sensation to me. I remember talking to you about the election uh, that next morning, watching the markets kind of go nuts, right? Mm-hmm. The market really thought and priced in that status quo that that Clinton was going to be our president. And it sort of put everything on its head that that Clinton wasn't elected president. And then we saw this sort of wild ride of rates up and rates back down. And really right now, they're a little bit higher than they were after that initial knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, total control by this president of Congress and all this, that, and the other. We're going to have this this Trump inflation factor with the tax cut plan, all these things. And that was what they pushed rates up. I mean, the market just moved rates right away, almost to four and a half. It was like four and three-eighths. So it's close to what it is today. <clears throat> and then over the course of the year, we saw a lot of that just ease back down. Like you said, we got to that point where – um, at the very beginning of the year, we were at the the 4% level. So it never went all the way back, but it went up and then about halfway back down. And I remember then thinking, man, I... Uh, we had a healthy amount of business last year that was sub 4%. Yeah. And a lot, I mean, high threes, you know? Yeah. And so, but anyways, I, I remember though, in that the November, December, January, February of last year, I remember just going, man, what if, you know? What if these rates go high enough that all of a sudden you're like everyone's back to staring at the phones and getting out there and doing all that marketing with with little fruit and just worrying that man is, you know I know these cycles happen but what if and and obviously you know as a company we're we're well positioned and well prepared for some market slowdown and correction I, I do believe that we'd be we'd be fine but. Um, it's hard if you let yourself think about that for too long about, man, what if there is a recession? What if property values decline slowly over a 10-year period? You know, what, what happens in that market? And I think some of it's just probably just general nervousness. But I, I look right now and I'm like, this feels a lot like last year, um, except for the only reasons I can see that things might that rates might improve or something are all only on the backs of, of significant negative news in the broad economy. Agreed. And I don't want to root for that. No, no one does. So 
this year, I think, is going to be an interesting one. It seems set up to be an interesting year. It does. And so what we saw this week, we had um, we had some interviews or testimony on Capitol Hill by our new Fed chairman, Jerome Powell. And he was talking about forecasts of rate hikes and thoughts on the economy, thoughts on wage inflation. Um, that last jobs report, which included a really positive wage growth component, really sparked um, a, a jump in interest rates that we've now seen last for basically the, the entire month of February. Um, but what I took away from the testimony was that he assured lawmakers that the economy is not overheating and that a measured approach, a slow and steady approach to rate hikes was still warranted. Um, that wage inflation, nothing about wage inflation right now suggests that it's, you know, poised for rapid growth or anything like that. Everything's just kind of moving along at a slow and steady pace, which it sounded to me like that was that was good. I don't. I don't think the economy or the Fed really likes to see knee-jerk reactions or crazy moves in any one way or the other. They like slow and steady. It's easier to plan for, easier to modify policy um, when, when things are a little more predictable. So the takeaway was that, you know, economy is growing, but not at a crazy rate. Wages, that was a good good jump in the wage growth, but... You know, I don't. I don't think it's gonna catch on fire here anytime soon. Um, but what we are seeing is positive movement, and it's going to support the continued path that we're on. Um, so it sounds like, from a Fed perspective, more of the same. Those, you know, three to four rate hikes this year, maybe two. Who knows? It kind of depends on on how things go. But just nice gradual path for interest rates. So I don't expect that we're going to see you know, six and 7% rates. It would, it, like I said, it would have to take something major in the economy to, to go that direction. It would have to be good, major, major in a good way um, for rates to reach those kind of levels. So that prediction of 5% interest rates by the end of the year sounds realistic. It sounds, sounds like something that I'm on board with. Yeah. And I think too, um, you know, I watched a little bit of the, the, testimony before congress of course read you know everything that i could get my hands on to read about it um i wasn't surprised to see that he's sort of a continuation i think of a lot of the policy of janet yellen and to remind everyone he was part of the 12 member board yeah you know so this he's been involved in these discussions for years but a lot of this sentiment seems like he's echoing the same sentiment she had so in that regard i think it was probably good for the market to see consistency um, consistency in the handoff because i mean this was his first presentation before the house financial services committee it's a (laughs) it's got to be a big deal in and of itself Uh, but altogether uh you know, we, I, I, I couldn't help but realize that um, the words are chosen really well. And when they asked him about, you know, rates, potential rate hikes, he said that the gradual hikes is what's appropriate. And 
um, not to prejudge what anybody else might be thinking or saying that you're going to get two or three or four or five, but that you can't, you can't lay out today like you already expect you know what's going to happen through the quarters of this year. <laughs> that everything else was... Tell that to the stock and bond traders. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know another thing <laughs> that I found out this week that I thought was interesting? Um, Dow Jones Industry... Let me start over on that. The Dow Jones Indices put the value of the global stock market around 60 Four trillion. The bond market, a hundred trillion. Hmm. Thought it would even be more than that. Really? Yeah. I knew that it would be bigger. Yeah. Um, but interesting is now. So so we're starting to hear these things talked about. Hey, the bond market can be volatile. Oh yeah, no, we know we're seeing it be a little bit volatile right now. Volatile on an upward path. Um, but it it is a a pretty massive market, and uh, maybe that answers your question about why when stocks when money comes out of stocks it doesn't go into bonds. Perhaps the very people that are taking money out of stocks already have an even bigger position in the bond market, and the movement of of that uh, equities market doesn't change the game plan of their bond holding. Right? right? Yeah. I, I've long thought about that. Well, think about your retirement, your investment accounts. You're split between the two, right? Sure. And and changes in the Dow don't change whether you don't. If you see that that the equities market moves, you don't say, okay, well, oh, counteract that. We got to swing all this money <laughs> right. over into the into the treasuries. So, um, you know, and I get probably on the broader sense, some of the hedge funds, things like that, where you're trying to anticipate or or work slightly ahead of growth yeah. cycles. I understand maybe those guys show some tendency of a couple percent one way or the other. But by and large, I mean, I mean, that's probably is a big part of it. At the same time, too, um, you know, maybe it's just that people come out and go and cash for a minute. Mm-hmm. If you watch the market from day to day, it's pretty extreme. Imagine if you were trying to be a day trader and profit every day on this market one way or the other uh, in, in the bond market or the stock market. You'd be you'd be pulling your freaking hair out <laughs> every day, right? Yeah. Get some news. Like, we get some news. Um, oh, here's a good example. Last week, durable goods come out, same day as consumer sentiment. Market perfectly ignores the durable goods, celebrates the consumer sentiment. Durable goods, a leading economic indicator, what we would call like market-moving primary data. Durable goods suggesting that the consumer's clamming up on those bigger ticket items. We already know that consumer spending is down a little bit, right? Consumers hoarding their dollar. Okay, well, then durable goods comes out. And and look, if you were interviewing me, Jason, respond to consumer spending and why, you know, what do we look at next to try to see if a trend is going to establish? I would say we got to watch for durable goods numbers. Those are going to come out in a couple weeks. Get to durable goods. They're off by 25%. Really surprising. And the same day, the market rallies around consumer sentiment. That makes it impossible to be a day trader, right? Stressful. Just crazy. <laughs> so it's up and down, up and down. And in our business, you know, this is this is a good time for us to talk about this a little bit. Um, what do you do right now? Lock alone? Don't lock alone? 
You know, most of the business... (laughs) After we just saw a 20 basis point improvement in the bond yields, (laughs) you take it while you can get it. Yeah, (laughs) and um, yeah, totally. (laughs) And most of the business that's happening right now is purchase business too, right? Yeah, so there's a timeline in place. You really can't think about the markets too much. Now, when you're doing a refinance, you might have a little more of a game plan and strategy and a w- ability to wait. I'm sitting here right now thinking how different this conversation feels than like five years ago when we would come on the radio and just be like, uh, hey, everybody, 3% 30-year fixed. Like, that's <laughs> almost really all you have to say. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nobody cares. I was like, well, can you lock that for me? You bet. <laughs> Not a problem. Today, it's like, all right, well, interest rate's 4.5%. That feels a little stinky. It's still pretty good in the big picture. It is. Be happy with it. And then at the same time, it's like, you should you should hurry up and lock that. <laughs> Just get off the, you know, could, could be a little bit better, could be a lot worse. <laughs> That's the thing people always ask me, you know, like I've got the crystal ball. Well, what do you think is going to happen in the next 30 days? <laughs> and I'm usually, I usually am like, well, interest rates could just as easily go up as they could go down. <laughs> See a lot of coffee and Tums in my future. If I have to bet... <laughs> Uh, I'd venture to say up is probably the safer bet. And I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. There's a part of me, and this is the thing is if, you know, if there's an angel on one shoulder or the other, uh, there's just one of, on one of the shoulders is a little Jason that's like, oh, things are going to get way better. <laughs> you know they are. That guy exists? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought you had two little negative Nellies on each shoulder. No, I got to shut that guy up, though, <laughs> with the other guy that's like, it doesn't get any better. This guy's gruff and tough. It doesn't get any better. You know, you got to put your boots on and go get to work today, right? There's no reason to believe it gets any better. But the other, the little, the little like, op, you know, optimistic dude is like, oh, man. Right around the corners, 4% rates again, just like last year. Be gangbusters. Finish out the year with more refis than you than you thought. But again, you hope not, because if we saw 4% rates again, it's because something's going bad in the general economy. It's the only reason why. Yeah. So, what I would way, I would way rather have, um, I want to test this theory. Um, by the way, guys, Friday was the first Friday of the month. Should have been the jobs jobs report, but it wasn't mm-hmm. because it was only the second day of the month, right? So we'll bring that next week. We'll have plenty to talk about there. But we've been riding this thing every month about hoping as we hit – are we at full employment? Most people say so. By the employment rate, yes. Okay. Next shoe to drop in that logical sequence is higher rates. Wages. So, uh, wages. So I want to see – Higher wages. Let's let's do that. Right. Let's see that. What would that be? I mean, get some, put some breathing room into the lower and middle class. That would be pretty epic. And we've been waiting for that for a really long time. Help home affordability. Yeah. Helps a lot of things. Did more discretionary spending. It's good stuff. That's what we need. Well, next week's going to be a fun week when we look at that. Um, We're at. 1030, time to take a commercial break. We'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters. 
Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Hi, this is Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. There's nothing like the euphoric feeling you get when you find the perfect home. The last thing you want is the embarrassment of discovering you don't qualify. It can actually cost you your deposit. Before you meet with a realtor, step one is to get pre-approved. Just call 503-LOAN. is an equal housing lender. California BRA number 018-39608. DBO number 6054783. MLS number 328-358. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people. Agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. Getting out of your comfort zone of mainstream is. Grateful Dead. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> I don't know. You were kind of over there bebopping a little bit there, too, Dan. Oh, that's good. It's pretty good. I, I enjoy good music. This yeah, was, it was good. I like to give Jason album. a hard time. I enjoy that, too. Yeah. yeah. Everybody enjoys that. <laughs> well, when you, well, you your, dish it out so When you well, live your life so. giving hard times, gonna you're going to receive them. Um, that whole album is a studio album, which is good. one of the rare ones, and it's fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Catches this kind of disco, funk, jazz era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Want to talk during, about some new home sales? Oh, you... No, I just <laughs> I just was pulling up my notes to see what I did want to talk about. There's um, some there's some housing news. There's new home sales. There's an FHFA house price index. Oh yeah. What else? Pending home sales. There's a lot of stuff this week. This is a big week. January new home sales were a little bit weak. Um the figure is seasonally adjusted. It was supposed to be 645,000 new homes sold, and then we sold 593,000. So almost an 8% dip below 
uh, what was expected. And uh, when investigated, it was due to high prices and rising mortgage rates. You mentioned a couple of home price. Uh, the FHFA, that's the Federal Housing Finance Agency, um, they produce their fourth quarter home price index data. Um, man, it's consistent, isn't it? 6.7% wow. from the fourth quarter of 2016. So we saw a year-over-year gain in that indice of 6.7% and 0.3% month over month. Um, just no let up. Home prices yeah. nationally are appreciating at a six to seven percent clip nearly everywhere you look. Um, now, remember that's for December. Uh, the S and P Case Shiller Home Price Index came out again uh, beginning of the week for the month of December. So a couple month lag on this one as well. Six point four percent a year ago. So. Up 6.4%, right in line with that between 6 to 7% annual appreciation. I went back and looked, just making sure that I've um, got a good handle on it. In fact, I was using the app. I know you like this Rate Watch app as well. Mm-hmm. If I change the parameters out on um, looking back at a three-month run of mortgage-backed securities and what <laughs> happened there. Seen that free fall there? Yeah, big free fall, right? <laughs> Downward curve. Wow. But look, November, still trading up near the high. It wasn't actually until late December that we started to really take that fall. So as I'm looking at these metrics, I think that these ones will become probably the benchmark of when we weigh out January, February, March, and then all the months to come this year. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that straddled the rate height increase i would totally expect to see strong sales numbers in terms of uh volume and price for december getting people off the fence not even that as much as if you're a pending home sale like you're in contract but you have not yet closed you have on average a 45 day closure period so if these rates really began their primary movement at the tail end of january then we should see the volume and price change of real estate, we should be able to see that reflected probably in the March home sales and home price indices, right? Mm -hmm. So we're at this period right now where I sort of expect that's what's coming. You might start to see that slow to 6% appreciation, 5% appreciation, 4% appreciation. A, A reminder here, a normal home price appreciation market is determined to be 3 to 5% annual appreciation just outpacing inflation we're so far beyond that when ed called earlier and said he picked up a home for 250,000 that was previously sold for 600,000 crazy um that's insane right what's going to happen over the next 10 years the house can be worth 1.2 million it's going to be worth 500,000 it's probably worth six hundred grand again. That's the oh yeah, and that's the question. You know, that's what everyone wants to know. Huh. And a lot of people who are in the industry believe that we're, while we're coming out of an unprecedented collapse of the industry, we're st- the the industry historically runs in about ten year cycles, 
and oh, we're overdue and we're we've run 10 years but does coming out of the worst housing crash since the great depression does that mean that we're going to have a longer run upward or or are we nearing the end and we only have you know a year two years left I don't know. Nobody knows the answer to that question. However, you remember when we were in the throes of this recession back in 2009, and it it was rough. I remember most people that you talked to had either was experiencing a real economic hardship at work uh, or over a piece of real estate that they were really in a tight spot with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seemed like... Most of the people I knew had something like that going on, right? When we were at that place, things were so tough. Thinking about the recovery, remember remember when we used to talk about the difference of the, you know, whether it would look like a U shape or a V shape? And all of the economists thought, man, it'll be a really wide U. That once we find bottom... In this real estate market, it's going to be that bottom for probably an extended period of time. And what we found out is that could not have been more wrong. It was an intense V-shape recovery. If you bought something at the bottom, it was by absolute dumb luck because the free fall went all the way down to a pit, climbed, turned immediately like a full-on bounce, and just went all the way back up. Unbelievable. So, like you said, now coming off of this 10-year cycle where there was a crazy V-shape recovery, we understand everything that went on, you know, in terms of the real estate market, uh, what will happen now? Will we have an extended plateau? That's what I bet. (laughs) What if we have an extreme correction again? I don't see that. I think an extreme correction comes with some other event going on let me like ask, what we saw was all the you let know, me ask bad you this too dan with resetting mortgages let me ask you this through that recession where people gobbled up real estate at now half price right, right. um do you think it was more that the rich got richer or did you do you believe that there was opportunity created and seized by those up-and-comers young young home buyers i would say mostly those with cash and those with that financial ability, they got the lion's share of the benefit. And then I think there's there was definitely some of the the young people who just by dumb luck, good timing, they just happened to be you know out of college into their first job that didn't already have a real estate. Right, they didn't have anything weighing them down. They had they had more money than they've ever had before, and they they saw an opportunity probably from advice from someone more experienced in their family was like now's the time you got to get in on this yeah and so i i think there was some of that but it was hard to even compete because those people still needed to finance the purchase and we know that cash really ruled during that peak low period of time yeah i definitely feel like there was a fair component to the the rich getting richer um also a standout in my mind i think about those how many of those people i helped buy homes that um 
probably couldn't have got their foot in the door any other way. Yeah. And um, and many of those people have sold those homes in the last year or two and bought a move up Moved home. Up, yeah. And it's fun to see they're like they're making more money at work now. They're they're re- they're contributing to retirement. Their house prices is pretty affordable now compared to to what life's become for them and you know it's exciting but i think those ones stand out that way because they're not they're not totally the norm how many times i did a loan for somebody that you know refinanced their really small loan balance against their new small property value but all they were really doing was taking advantage of getting a killer rate or moving down into a a 2% 15-year fix or something wild. You know, there was just those people that, um, sure, their values went down for a little while, but it just didn't ruin their life the way, you know, other folks went through it. And now, um, you know, I, I always like to look back at the last couple of months about the purchase transactions that we see and do. And there's still plenty of people buying homes right now. There's plenty of people that are getting pre-approved. <laughs> buying them as fast as they come on. Yeah. Yeah, really. That's pretty much it. I mean, the time on market's like somewhere around 30 days. Yeah, I closed a loan this week for a couple that um, they were referred by some friends, previous clients. And so they came in and they were pretty conservative, you know, like, I think she worked for the county and he worked for the prison. So they had two, you know, good jobs, good government jobs. But they were really concerned about um, selling their home and buying a new home and how you move your equity from one to the other without risking being homeless, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to tell them, I was like, hey, everybody everybody goes through this. That's That's what's hard right now. Is you really, if you need your equity out of there, you're really going to have to sell that house to, to get your new house. And so we came up with our best strategy, which was when they found the house they really wanted to try to offer a little bit longer escrow period on it, not make it contingent on selling their home. They actually had enough to make the minimum down payment and income wise, they could really qualify for both homes. So it was not a contingent offer, but they offered with a pre-approval letter for 5% down. And um, and our game plan was that they would then list their home after the fact and hope to find a buyer that was able to close in a shorter time frame. So basically buy the home on a 45-day escrow, sell your home on a 30-day escrow, and hope to get it into contract in that 15-day period. And it's absolutely what happened. They got a full price offer on their home, uh, which I think was priced fairly. I mean, it was not like a bargain deal. It seemed like it was the normal fair market price for the home they bought and the home they sold. And uh, But it all came right together. And, you know, so the... That, I think, is probably almost the average person that's buying right now. Two-income household, usually, you know, um, if you're not a first-time home buyer, then you're a buyer that's trying to make a change. Different school district, from two stories to one, whatever the, whatever the big thing is. But, um, yeah, now and, – and by the way, we're back to um, lots of people bumping into the debt-to-income ratio maximum lately, which is always a little bit freaky. 
We went through that period in the middle of the recession where a lot of first, even first-time home buyers were like well qualified in terms of the debt-to-income ratio. They could qualify for way more than they wanted. Now we're starting to see people bump into it more and more. You know, the last probably six first-time home buyers that I've counseled, I've been able to say, okay, well, you're pre-approved to 440. That's hard right now to find a house in this county for 440. And that's, you know, you're hitting on the exact issue that I've thought would start to cool off the home appreciation is that, you know, there's obviously a lot of demand. I do not see a change in demand. I, I see demand remaining high and short of just all of a sudden millions and millions of homes coming on the market. I see demand remaining outpacing supply. I I don't see a change in that, but it's that affordability issue as rates go up. um, People will run into that debt to income ratio max or just whether it's that or just beyond their personal comfort level of what housing costs, that's going to keep them at a, at a price cap on homes. And at some point that's going to plateau real estate values, I think. So you know whether it's one or two more years of above average appreciation i th- you know whatever it is i i think at some point we hit an equilibrium with affordability and prices where it just has to it has to put a plateau on the the appreciation side of of real estate yeah so the only reason i think that maybe doesn't happen is that and again, just my small vantage point of being like a, a a pinhole on the map of here in in Central California. Um, I still just think there's enough people. There's enough people trying to buy, and the scarcity of homes available are just it's well beyond where the balance would have otherwise been found. You know, in other words, there's. When something comes on, there's just so many people that have been anxiously awaiting it that if it's priced fairly, people still know that you you've got to act quickly. You know, days are we we learn every time the the National Association of Realtors kicks out their data, we learn that days on market are dropping. Um, escrow lengths are dropping, and inventory is at some crazy lows nationally. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where it, it th- there's just still such a demand that until that demand lessens up, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. People are hitting the top end and they're feeling pressed and those issues are, are definitely beginning to surface a little bit. But how long does it take that to bubble up before you see – properties start to sit on the market then. And then in that environment, then you'll have homeowners that go, I was going to sell, but now I'm not going to. There's already three for sale signs on my block. And I, I was thinking about it, but I don't really need to move. Mm -hmm. So then they don't. And then you, you sort of perpetuate the cycle. Um, you know, by the way, Remember all those huge companies, the Blackstones of the world that bought hundreds of thousands of single family units with the intention of like flipping them when values were through the roof? Well, guess what? The values are there. How come they're not unloading them? Because the rents are freaking high. (laughs) And now they're like, some of those companies are reevaluating their models going, hey, wait a minute. 
this cash flow is pretty sweet. So that's the other thing I think, you know, you expect real estate volume or value. We hope real estate value, uh, the appreciation rate slows down to something more sustainable. Uh, but at the same time, I think rents are a big part of that, aren't they? Like you said before, sure. if your mortgage is three grand and the rent's three grand, huh, you're probably better off to have a mortgage or to keep the mortgage you do have in that case. I was sitting here trying to find something I saw a month ago or so about the number of home purchases that used mortgage financing as mm. opposed to cash. And I, I can't find it. Existing home sales data regurgitates that. I had it in my notes a couple weeks ago for the Patterson meeting. And first time home buyer was going up and cash transactions were going down. I want to say cash transactions had dropped to about 26 or 7% of overall market where they last year though. And in years prior, they were North of 30%. So we're seeing that come down a little bit um, as well as first time home buyer making up more of the market as they have been for the last several years. So I think both of those components lead to a real, reliance on the mortgage rate being affordable and their wages being you're right stable or growing you're right um and that again i i go back to this are we addicted to low interest rates that's why when you say in the face of of above average home appreciation yes now if home appreciation slows down or plateaus then we can absorb a little bit of interest rate increase or if wages start to grow more significantly we can af- we can But you understand that. too though is that we have we have a supply and demand problem so you're those things are so intimately related that the only way you know barring a major shift in mentality and you know of the home buyer the homeowner real estate's a poor investment and a fool would buy real estate today. Mm-hmm. You remember when that was the case, right? Sure. It was not that long ago. So whatever happens to get us to that position, that would be awful. I think nobody wants that. So barring that, now you've just got to find equilibrium with supply and demand in order to take the pressure off of the prices. I don't see how that happens in the next 12 months without major catastrophic disaster. So that being said, I don't see it in the next 12 months either. I see it. I see, you know, even the, what was it? The S and P number that had been more in the higher sixes, um, year over year reading for S and P over the course of all of 2017. And now you're saying that the December reading was 6.4%. So that's starting to slow down a little bit. Let's keep our eye on that. As that starts right. to approach six, maybe even dip down into the fives, we're going to see that. You wouldn't know, it be our lovely? Wouldn't it be lovely if it if it worked its way to normal without major event? It, you know what? All signs point to that. We're seeing it. Inflation in working growth. its way. We're seeing it in inflation. We're seeing it in wage growth. You know, everything's moving the way we want Cautiously it to in a slow the goal. and steady. Uh, way and th- I think it's good. 
Yeah. I, I think it's a good thing. We don't want those knee-jerk reactions. We don't want those unexpected, volatile changes. Um, it's yeah, you know what the plan in this market. It's funny when I talk to people that are in process, and, and believe me, or some people are trying to find a home for greater than 90 days, right? Some people, it takes six or nine months to get a place. Um, somebody that I met with in, in December versus meeting with that same person today, I have to break the sad news to them. Hey, you came, your pre-approval for an interest rate at 4% versus today at 4.5%, that's a change, and you need to understand that change. It's a change of the debt service. It's a change of your purchase power if you're maxed out on your debt-to-income ratio. But guess what? That guy that walks in off the street today without a whole lot of historical knowledge of recent data, walks right in and goes, ah, you don't want to buy a house. Great. 30-year fix today is at 4.5%. Wow, it's that really sounds low. Good. Sounds good. But I even can afford for the, that. Even for the person who's been watching more closely and seen that it's gone from 4 to 4.5, they should be educated enough to know that where it's going. You know, it's mm. going to 5. It's going to go to 5.5. It's going to go to 6, right? So if you want to buy a home... Doing it now is better than doing it later. Well, and we were um, – see how quickly I can pull up my point file here. We were we were having this discussion about um, what that half a point does. To the – keeping the payment the same, what it does to your, to your price? Yeah, so like at – at a 4% interest rate, a $400,000 loan is going to cost you 1909 a month. Principal and interest? Principal and interest. If you change that interest rate to 4.5, you go from 1909 to 2026. So I need 100, 100, 106 bucks a month, something like this. That's not a huge amount of money. That's yeah, 1200 bucks a year. Over to life loan makes money. Sure. You'll you'll be keeping your eye out for an opportunity to refi at four, right? Sure. But it's not it's not enough to knock you out of the game. The difference from four to five, the difference from four to six. Um still to me, every time I start going down this rabbit hole and I try to figure the whole thing out, I, I circle all the way back to the fact that, well, we have a scarcity issue. That's what we have. And unfortunately, scarcity of land, scarcity of labor, um, a pretty robust regulatory environment, which I got a better taste for over the last month, <laughs> building our um, – we did some tenant improvements for a new office location we have in Atascadero. And boy, oh boy, plan check, plan review. All the things you've heard, did it take longer than expected? A lot longer. Did it cost more than expected? Much more. <laughs> Was it frustrating to go through the you know, inspection process and all that? Impossibly so. <laughs> yeah. Were you it, surprised at some of the requirements of today? Crazy. They want <laughs> on and off switches on like the power receptacles at the wall, like that you would plug your TV into. They want that to have an on and off switch on the switch itself so that you, if you so choose, you could turn off the power to that switch that when you left. And also, you know, in some of these things, I get it. Um, we had to put in LED lights. I can't wait for you to see them. They're amazing. I love LED lights. Crazy efficient. Yeah. 
Also, we had to put in receptacle motion motion detector sensor switches that will shut off after five minutes of no movement detected. Which is frustrating because if you're just getting down to it on your computer and not moving a lot, (laughs) the lights will just shut off on you. They're 40 times the cost of a traditional receptacle. And that... Just crazy, okay? <laughs> but so, yeah, those things push higher values. Those, these, are, these are why we have a scarcity and, and a little bit of a crunch is it's expensive. Just I go under, build something new if you could. If you've got the super efficient LED lights, why do you also need the motion sensor to turn them off? I don't know. You're lucky they haven't come up with like a hamster that <laughs> eats air to power the light. We'd have a bunch of hamster wheels on every light too. Uh, good times. Hey guys, uh, we're we're nearing the end of the show, right? Weren't you just holding up a finger, Jim? Uh, one minute, actually. Yeah, and now it's about thirty seconds. <laughs> we're doing pre-approvals for anybody that wants to get pre-approved. Come up with a game plan about how you could afford to buy a home or an investment property, a vacation home, whatever you need. Uh, get in touch with us. Get in touch with us at five four three loan five four three five six two six or centralcoastlending dot com. Thanks very much for being with us this week. We look forward to joining you next week for a whole nother two-hour block. So see ya.